Welcome to the Association Strong Podcast, where we offer insight from both a seasoned association exec and an entrepreneur. I'm Dave Will. And I'm Tom Morrison. Listen in as we discuss and debate hot topics in the association community. Don't forget to subscribe and share us with your friends. Tommy Bahami. Big Dave. Tom here, bud. It's good to see you again or listening to you because this is a podcast, not a video cast. And I'm here in Pittsburgh where I'm freezing like crazy, man. Under 40 degrees and I just can't take it. Tom, Tom, it's beautiful out. It's it's a little overcast, but I'm telling you, like the leaves change. It's okay. Listen, let's get it. We got a really important uh, guest here today. This is probably the most highfalutin guest we've ever had in this podcast. She's she's uh, uh, I've known her for uh, a number of years. Actually, I do another podcast and I interviewed her in 2019. Actually, this is really interesting. We'll we'll, we'll get to that part in a second. Dave, a lot has happened since that moment. You know that, don't you? A lot. <laughs> I, uh, like like world what? changing stuff. Yeah. The economy. Economy stopping stuff. Uh, uh, yeah. So so, Tom, I belong. I don't know if you know one of the values in my company is for and with the com- with with the with the community. Right. And a big part right. of that means that not only do we work with associations, but just about every employee in my team is a part of an association and an active part. And one of the associations, probably the association, not probably the association I associate with the most, the one that uh, where I have a real sense of identity, the one where I, I put the biggest percentage of my dollars into as a as a uh, organization, the one where I volunteer the most of my time, it's called Entrepreneur's Organization. And I've mentioned that a number of times. I actually have a podcast called EO360, where I interview a lot of cool people. Been doing that for a number of years. And about three years ago, I interviewed the executive director of of EO, and that's our guest today. Her name is Carrie Santos. Welcome, Carrie Santos. Welcome, Carrie. Welcome, Dave. Welcome, Tom. I'm really um, happy to be on Association Strong. I am a listener, so (laughs) this is exciting for me. Well, you you and one other person. And hello to our (laughs) listener out there, right, Tom? Hello. Hey, so, uh, we call Carrie, her solo listener. Carrie, Carrie's got uh, an interesting background. She's worked with the U.S. Department of State. Uh, uh, what was this? The, the policy section chief? I don't know what that means, but it sounds big because it has the word chief in it. Yeah. You were working with refugee admissions. Uh, you, uh, you worked for the American Red Cross for nine years as the executive director of the in- International Response and Programs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, disaster response, really tough stuff. <laughs> so. At the yeah, American Red Cross, and then the Department of State. What's What's interesting is none of those to me scream association work. So, like, what? Tell me about. And by the way, wait before I get into the questions. Carrie's wicked smart. She she went to Princeton. She's got a PhD. If I'm not mistaken, you're married to a PhD too. No, he's just a master's in architecture. Loser. <laughs> we we got to make sure he does not listen to this because when she referred to him, he's just got a master. <laughs> he's very <laughs> proud of his wife, who's Dr. Santos. So. And, Carrie, I just I, I knew this from before because I see it in your bio, but you were a Fulbright scholar in Poland. Yeah, yeah. My my nephew just flew over to Germany uh-huh. as a Fulbright scholar from uh, from UVM. It's a great program. Changed my life. Fulbright is amazing. Yeah. Well, you and I have to talk about that offline sometime. I want to hear more about that. Um, all right. So with that, Carrie, uh, d- d- let's let's start with that because your background is, it, I, it, like I said, it doesn't scream right. member-based organization. Right. 
Right. So like what what was the draw either what drew you to associations or the person that recruited you what did they see right, in you right. that that pulled you into this to this actually Carrie before you answer that I think it's more important for people to understand what EO is do you want yeah. to start there and then yeah. let's go into that question about so how then to we get can make the EO. connection yeah. yeah so entrepreneurs organization where 167000 uh, members around the world. Most of our members now are outside of North America, even though we were founded in uh, the U.S. and Canada. Hold on, did and you say sixty-seven thousand? No, sixteen to seventeen. Oh, oh okay. I'm mumbling. Uh, no, that would be so dramatic. Like, I would be. Like, <laughs> yeah, we grew <laughs> dramatically. No, That's... sixteen to seventeen thousand. Okay. You know, on any given day. Okay. Uh, I didn't look up the number this morning. I think we're still shy of seventeen thousand. Great. So we're growing because oh, absolutely we're fourteen thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we consistently grow about 7% a year um, net growth. Um, oh, we're going to talk about that. Write yeah. that down, Tom. We got to come back to 6 or 7% growth every year. All right. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, for I, I think it's sustainable. It's organic. It's not uh, like credit card sales. It's, it's really good. Um, so we're excited about that. And to be a member of entrepreneurs organization, especially for people in other industries, we're not a startup. Like startups get a lot of... Um, PR these days. This is not for startup entrepreneurs. It's for entrepreneurs who have already arrived. Their revenue is over a million dollars per year, which is a much, much sp smaller slice of the entrepreneurial pie to get to those people who are successful, proven entrepreneurs. It's a, a smaller group. And basically, uh, it's people who are really committed to lifelong learning. And when you are the business, your mind in the game, your mindset, uh, understanding your strengths and weaknesses is really critical. And so what we try to do is help members go from whatever took them to that 1 million mark and to get them to the next level, which is usually, you know, what got you here won't get you there. So members learn how to get out of their own way. They learn how to play to their strengths. They learn how to hire a COO or uh, an executive director. Um, and then suddenly, uh, growth seems to happen when they they get peer support from other entrepreneurs helping them see um, some of their blind spots and uh, really how to go to that next level. So it's a peer support, um, peer learning organization. And the entrepreneurs just love getting to know each other, getting to network, learning side by side in person events, and the takeaways they get by learning collectively. It's just like this energy that you can't stop and, and, and their number of chapters is 193 no no 223 oh my, wow. <laughs> we're, and we're in um we have members in about 70 countries because we also have some chapters that are multi-country mm -hmm. but i think chapters are in like over 60 but i mean there's, there's a lot of chapters in the u.s alone yes it's typically one in every big city yes uh, so yes. it's even more than one per state it's one I don't know that we have one in every state, but there's one in just about every big city. Yes, so, yes. Like we're a little weak in South Dakota and Wyoming, but besides that, uh, we're we're uh, you know we're in Iowa, we're in Nebraska, we're in Kansas, all of it. So hugely volunteer driven uh, at the chapter level, the regional level, yeah, yeah. and the global level. Um, in fact, uh, I'm involved at the global level in, in the podcast and. Um, uh, I'm involved at the local level on my board as the learning chair, and as a result, I'll be heading off to South Africa in April, which is really exciting. It'll be my first time in in Africa, um, it, it, and uh, so at, that's at the global leadership 
conference where EO teaches its chapter leaders how to do a better job leading yeah. the chapter, right? And, and to then, also just get that connection and the energy by seeing the organization all around the world, you know, as opposed to just knowing it in your own town. Now, membership is not cheap. It's, it's uh, you know, I budget about 10 grand a year for EO, but that includes my forum travel. Now, forum is a small group of six to 10 people, six to 12 people in a typically in a chapter that, um, and a chapter is broken up to many forums. Um, and so your forum really is a core group of people that it's kind of like group therapy for entrepreneurs, right? So that's one of the member benefits of EO right. is the structure around this forum, but all in, and I don't even know how much it is at the global level, chapter level, yeah. but it's like six or seven, probably six grand, just divided between the chapter and, and, and global. And then the rest of the money goes into, you know, expenses around your Going local to your chapter. retreats and other add-ons. Yeah. So it's, it's about 10 grand is the budget for a fair. member. So it's not cheap, right? Compared to a lot of associations where membership might be $85, $250, right, you know, right. $600 for a professional association. Right. Carrie, I've always kind of question, is this a trade association, a professional association? And, and I'm leaning a little more towards professional because it's individual yeah. members. Yes. No, it's different when you have your customer as a person versus a corporation that is yeah. governed in a very corporate way. Um, you know, we have individuals making their business decisions and uh, the difference between the person and the business can be very, very small because they are the business. Um, I think they operate differently than, let's say, big metal corporations that uh, Tom might have in his network. How many staff, like 130? Uh, now we're up to about 150. 150 staff. Okay. All around uh, the world, mostly remote. Uh, I mean, really, we're, we're barely in person after COVID. Yep. All right. Riddle me this. How do you go from American Red Cross and the U.S. Department of State to um, running a member-based organization? Yeah. Like so what most of you don't know, Red Cross is a very well-known organization, but most of you don't realize it's a member organization. I would say it was one of the original because most Red Crosses, like, you know, they were founded back in 1860 and um, often based on a membership model where you would buy your membership and be a local supporter. So I would say, it, you know, one way to look at it is the largest, oldest membership organization on the planet. They can't even measure how many volunteers they have. It's like 50 million, 75 million. So it's a massive volunteer organization that was built on a membership model. And it runs now as a federation. So it's really complicated to be this old. And so there's uh, maybe 170 national Red Crosses and nobody's in charge of any of them. They, they run in a network. And so my first job at American Red Cross was like trying to help American Red Cross work in that network. You know, you had to ask, hey, can we provide help in Haiti? You don't like get to just show up on a plane. It's all about understanding the local chap, well, the national chapters, the local chapters. And most of them, it's like 99 volunteers to one paid staff or like 99.9. .9. So very heavily volunteer organization, the kind of kinds of skills we needed um, 
to work in that setup. But also it's a very, very values driven organization. Everybody knows the Red Cross mission. You can go anywhere around the world, find a Red Cross volunteer. They're using the same mission. And EO is a lot like that, where the yeah. values are very, very similar everywhere. So I think I had a massively talented headhunter who like was looking at my resume, asking me a lot of questions. And you know, because people don't know Red Cross is such a volunteer association, yeah. but, but that was a lot of what um, we have to do to just operate and Red Cross is understand the volunteer structure. I get it now. Like it, you're right. It, it sounds very, very similar the way you describe it. So let, I'm really curious. And then Tom, I'm going to, I swear to God, I'm going to let you in now. Tom and I usually fight over who gets asked next question, but I'm, I'm going to have his way because I usually just dominate the conversation. I think he knows because I know you, he's being nice to me, which is interesting. <laughs> so Carrie, so being, you mentioned is like, I forgot the ratio at, at Red Cross. 99 one. to one. Yeah, yeah. What is that ratio at EO, if, if you know it? Because yeah. I know there's tons of volunteers, tons yeah. of volunteers. So we estimate about 3,000 are volunteers in any one year out of, let's say, 17,000. But people, almost everybody ends up serving on the chapter board. I would say anyone who stays in the organization more than five years, they, they end up on the chapter board. It so rotates, if, right. Yeah. Right. So if everybody, you know, let's say at least two thirds, three quarters of our members have volunteered at some point, but in a single year, let's say 3000 chapter level volunteers, and then regional and global volunteers is about 300. And then I have 150 staff. So, you know, that's, we're still massively outnumbered in, in a good way. I mean, that's why actually our costs are lower than you would think. And I have um, done estimates of the volunteer hours at the chapter level, uh, the regional, global level, and the amount of money, let's say we spend on our staffing budget in EO on my team, uh, is dwarfed by the amount of volunteer hours we get back at all those levels. And you know, even if you know some kind of role may be doing 10, 10 hours a month, uh, we can debate how much to charge you out at Dave. Uh, and I've had this debate with members, but I'd say I give you a minimum $100 an hour for the work you're doing. Sometimes you guys are doing $500 an hour work. But let's say, uh, you know, so those that amount of human capital we get from our members is just massive. And Dude, the members yeah. love that because they know that they're put they're going to events that have been curated from the point of view of an entrepreneur. They're listening to a podcast that is by an entrepreneur. They really want to see the entrepreneur at the center of all the programming. And how do you where do you think uh, that level of volunteerism comes from. I mean, it, it's it's not like you just put an email out and all of a sudden right. you get a bunch of volunteers. Right. Why do you think EO has had so much success uh, in the volunteer spectrum? Well, the average member will come up to me and say, I kid you not, they say, Carrie, EO changed my life. You're like, that, that's like beyond priceless for, for most of them. They can say, mm. save my marriage, save my business multiple times. Uh, I'm a better father. And they literally, because they've received so much peer help from other entrepreneurs, they just want to give back. They want to help somebody else. And you can't invent that. That's not like a business plan. I don't think Harvard you know, no, no shade on Harvard Business School, but I don't think you can teach that. This is something that's grown very organically over 30 years. And um, the commitment, you know, as you said, Dave, you identify with it. And um, then you also learn like all these other skills that you don't get in your business, but, you know, you want to help, you want to help other business people, you get to do some amazing things. And, 
you know, the, the fact that we're, we're giving people part of, you know, that we're helping them identify their values, their purpose in life. It's really a gift to be involved in that. So I want to um, tell you the members perspective of that, which I think you have uh, right. You've nailed it. I think um, I don't, honestly, I don't know that I want to give back. It, it's quite a selfish, this is more the Adam Smith approach. Like I'm a, I'm a big believer in capitalism. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes I think selfishness is good for the whole. And by my- You interest, sound like Gordon Gecko. Greed, <laughs> greed. Greed is, is good. Greed is a different thing. Greed is a different thing. Selfish, but, no, but putting yourself and what your needs are at the center, I, I hear you. And so I get involved because it enriches my experience with EO. So that's a pretty selfish perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, my involvement also helps uh, grow the machine. So um, I'm a huge, huge, um, but I'm a huge fan of EO. However, and I will be a member for a long, long time. I have been for uh, somewhere between 12 and 14 years. Crazy. And uh, however, I will also say, like anything I really love, uh, my wife, my kids, my boat, my dogs, they drive me bonkers sometimes like eo drives me off the wall bonkers sometimes and that's I'm not sorry. what this podcast well no you don't have to apologize because it's just part of a relationship right it doesn't any relationship is going to have that component of it um and that's not what this podcast is about today uh anyway we can do another podcast you just that. call me later to give me that no list. i will not do that <laughs> right, Dave, not, i'm time, sure you get enough of that up. Your time is up. I am yielding two minutes to myself. Go, go, Tom. Go, Tom. So, so, so Carrie, I, so I, 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 I hear a bunch of really um, impactful conversations to have in your past and the things that you've done with American Red Cross and, and Ian. And one of them is leadership. I mean, when COVID came along, association execs like me, I mean, I've always had a good mindset, I think, for dealing with, with bad issues. That's why my board loves me. But so many do not. But you lived in disaster zone the right. entire time with American Red Cross. So right. when COVID came along, it was just like no big deal because we're just going to implement the disaster plan that we always yeah. implement. So boil it down to what do you think the keys for I like to get into practical so our listeners yeah. take away. And so leadership, what do you think of the keys of have, being able to deal with that moment when just the world goes bam and, and whether it's a piece of legislation going through, um, you know, just anything big. What, are the, what do you think the keys in that mindset in your office to say, okay, what are we going to do now? Wait one second. So you said anything big like COVID, for example? It, Let me, yeah. So I mentioned that Carrie and I did a podcast for EO. Like I, I thought it'd be kind of cool to interview our fearless leader back. And that was in, and I'm looking at my notes from them because I wanted to make sure I had all the facts and in introducing Carrie. So I pull up these old notes and it was December 2nd of 2019. And so we wow. spent a few minutes in the green room before recording here, reminiscing over just how ignorant we were to what was around the corner. Right. Like yeah. Right around the corner. But I think it's I think it's important for executives listening to understand really when when disaster happens, no matter how big or small, what are the keys when you're sitting in your office yeah. in those first few moments to try and build a plan to say we got we're, we got I got to lead us through this. Yeah, yeah. So it's absolutely process. And uh, we were uh, really a bunch of professionals taught me this at American Red Cross. I can't take any credit for it. They run like a machine in terms of having, you know, a core team meeting, 
every morning before the day starts, uh, having different people assigned to get the news overnight and bring it to that core team meeting. Uh, so it's not that you know what decisions you're going to make, you set up the framework for making the decisions. So uh, at our association, we didn't have necessarily that crisis disaster response practice, but I knew how to set it up. I'm like, okay, we need a comms person, we needed this person, we needed that person, you're on the core team. And then we used our um, our internal internet to set up a core um, information spot. That's the other thing everyone needs to know. Go here to find out if that event's canceled. Go there to get the template for such and such. And so like bringing the communications together, I think um, was really what I brought the most to our organization. That's really standard for a lot. I mean, so you probably have people in your industry who mm -hmm. may deal with crises in a regular right. way. They would have that same practice too. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think the difference for us, you know, the Red Cross works in a very like automated way. But for me, I had to set up a regular cadence with my board. We basically met every single week, the same time, right. same, day, same day, every week. And we didn't really run out of things to discuss for probably, I don't know, nine, 10, 12 meetings. It was changing every, yeah. every, every day. Yeah. So just knowing that we were going to meet with them every week, we were going to give them back information every week and having the machine in place between meetings to, to figure that out. So, you know, a, a key place where everyone can go to get the source of truth, you know, everyone will go here to get the talking points on this. And then you have to assign staff whose job it is to maintain right. those information mm -hmm. points. And we, we just didn't have that practice, but I knew what it looked like. I'm like, okay, you know, you have to do this. This is this is the role now. So as a leader, what was the key to keeping the team meetings and the team running forward amongst things that are changing so rapidly every day? I think you actually have to be sure that everybody doesn't know everything. There is a desire when um, something's going on that, oh, I need to every know everything, but you really need your events team and like the contract guy to go there and be negotiating with a hotel and leave you out of it. Because if, if you're trying to have like 10 people know everything, you'll just talk to each other all day. So you really have to be able to separate out some of the work and, you know, maybe they can post a little sentence back on your, your core page, but uh, having really good delegation practice for sure. And I mean, then the point is not to panic. Uh, right. What I liked about going through this com this conflict, it was a conflict, this crisis with entrepreneurs is there were different people on my board. They're like, yeah, I've gone bankrupt three times. Ah, when it, it was 9-11, this happened to my business. When it was 2008, this happened to my business. So they, a lot of them were very, very calm. And so I would right. spend more time with that type of person and sure. try to get a little space between someone who's more um, worried and excited because you really just have to have the actions keep running you and not get too caught up in emotions. But having the structure around you um, helps so that uh, people know, okay, I'm going to the meeting. I have to present my little update at the meeting or my issue. And you know, we're not sitting there like getting all upset every morning. Trust, Tom, trust is what I heard there in terms right. of the delegation. It was, it was kind of an underlying theme that I don't think Carrie touched on. It, my guess is because it's so inherent in her leadership, but um, you can't give somebody the responsibility to go handle negotiations. Then you step back and do your, exactly. your responsibility unless there's a fair amount of trust. And that's very difficult. That, that's, I think, one of the hardest things because it's it's not actually, it doesn't, it's not meant to be a malicious thing to not trust somebody. Right. It's a control freak sort of thing not to trust somebody. You have to consciously 
let go of something knowing that it's their responsibility to do this, not yours. Yeah. And Carrie, well, that's an underlying theme of what your point is there, I think. Yeah. And I want to see if you agree with this, Carrie. Carrie we, my board did the same thing. I met with my executive committee every single Wednesday for an hour, and we did nothing but talk about where are we at, what's the latest information, where are we going towards next? We thought in weekly increments towards the bigger picture. Right. And so, um, but what I found is that during the during the chaos and the crisis, that it was more important to trust your people more than ever because you had to rise above all that minutia and actually just be the team cheerleader in the rally and keep people run in a positive state to get to the other side. Yeah, yeah. And that's um, more of my natural leadership style mm -hmm. is to be very like positive cheerleading. And I think me coming from the Red Cross, you know, my, my old Red Cross teammates will be like, Carrie, you didn't run any disaster. It was us. But, but I had enough confidence, at least seeing how it went, that uh, I could bring that back to EO and, you know, give the, the feeling that I wasn't as afraid. I mean, we dealt with Ebola on my watch at Red Cross. That was scary, mm -hmm. scary, scary, scary. And so I know we were all really freaked out about this pandemic and coronavirus, but it still wasn't Ebola. And the responsibility we took for our staff and the fear and not knowing how they would come back. So, you know, I felt like I've been to different le levels of Dante's hell that were worse than this. And, you know, we just canceled the meeting. Like, that's okay. Right. I don't have to send someone in there and have them, you know, make a trade-off whether the humanitarian benefit is more important than their own health, which, you know, is a day-to-day -day issue in the Red Cross. So to dial it down to a personal level, in the midst of all that, for CEOs, executive directors, the people at the top of the food chain in that crisis, what were you doing to stay tuned in? I mean, you're 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 the cheerleader for everybody. Yeah. And I always ask the, the top person, well, who's your cheerleader? You know, and that, so how did you kind of cope individually to make sure that you were in the right state of mind and shape yeah. to lead? So that? luckily, like many of us, um, my kids were home and my husband was home. And so it was kind of nice to go to a yeah. meeting walk out my door here and then get a hug from my daughter. I mean, if we would have lunches together, that emotional support was sure. amazing. And then my husband and I, um, we would go for a lot more walks. And so we have a little place nearby that's got woods and uh, trails and we can just walk there five minutes. So we would try to walk every day. I'm such a big believer in greenery. Like it doesn't it do great things to your cells. They've proven in Japan that being around trees and all that helps. So I would just force myself to get outside and um, take a break because you also know like your brain is not going to be able to function if you're just in crisis mode. So those pauses are really, really important. Hey, Carrie, uh, ch changing subjects a bit, getting away from um, pandemics and shit let's start let's talk i'm curious about the value proposition because this is something that's top of mind for me not only my business but for associations right because i think the growth of an association or the the retention or the losing membership which i guess would be retention uh is really centered around being able to communicate and match your member benefits with the members and to broadcast and mess like it, it and and share those benefits. What do you see as the value proposition for EO? And I don't care if it's a, like a, a formal value proposition or if you just want to describe it in your own words. Like, what is it? What's the value proposition? Oh, I think it's that you don't have to be alone. Um, I, I think it is a very lonely 
job, profession, calling, whatever you want to call it. And the fact that our members find, we usually say find their tribe, you know, they, they find such a core sense of belonging that um, a lot of them will say, you know, my family doesn't understand why I do this. People think I'm crazy. Why do I take these risks? I can't tell my wife that how close we are to a financial disaster, but having the ability not to be alone in a very, very lonely business, I think um, is, it, and then you can't put a price on that. And where you can go once you're able to feel that fellowship, the kinds of risks you can take, the learning, the tough decisions, um, I, I think it's just remarkable. So, I mean, it's weird to call it a support group and entrepreneurs don't think they need a support group. So that's not usually how we hook the members. Oh. You know, we, we hook them on the growth, but it really comes from um, having your own board of directors, you know, having people from all these different industries, different stages in their business who can really help you go to that next level. Well, that, uh, but, that's exactly why I'm a member. Everything you just described. So I think in, I think you nailed that. Quite, it wasn't a quiz, but yeah. you nailed it. By the way, uh, and in fact, so much so, I don't. I think I saw you at a at a regional conference a couple of weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I, yeah, yeah, that was a, it. Was a Virginia Beach. Yeah. I I think I was wearing this hat that I had made for a Boston Heal oh, Boston cool. chapter, and and so this is it. I just saw it on my shelf. <laughs> it's it it's a big black hat with um on the and bright gold uh, green letters. I'm wearing it now. Says, "Ask me about my cult." And if that doesn't scream uh, uh, this passion, this identity right. with EO, nothing does. And that's that's why we made these hats. It's right. a little, it's bold, right. but ask me about my cult pretty much speaks to um, to this. So this I mean, you were me. talking though, to interrupt, um, you were yeah. talking about what's the value proposition. And for us, I think that there are many for-profit offerings like this. There are for-profit companies in this space that are trying to help businesses grow, coach CEOs, coach founders. And I think they're just selling something different than what we have. And what we are, we're not even really selling it. It's like, you know, either you want it and you're part of it, but um, I, I find it hard to think that a for-profit is going to be able to get that loyalty and that connection that we get from the volunteers. It's not me. It's not that I like, it's not that I know how to make Dave feel like he's found his tribe. I mean, it's other members. And I, I think if you're working for the man and the money's going to the corporate uh, shareholders, it's not the same as you volunteering to help each other, you know, that that's helping your network and that your human time and effort is not going into somebody else's profit line. You know, like, like, like what you just said, Terry, and what Dave just said, we just had our annual trade show and fall meeting where we graduated 36 executives from our young executive training program. And it's phenomenal. And then we had our award ceremony at the end. And what was really, really gratifying to me as the leader is to sit and listen to people from the mic over and over again say, the moment I got tuned in to Metal Treating Institute, my life changed yeah. dramatically. My business changed, I changed, and it changed me. And I think associations don't put enough focus on that because they just they're just trying to make a difference in the business. But when your members start saying personally that my heart, my life, I'm a better father changed, you really gone the full bore. So I think they stop short of that. And I think that's a great thing. The question is, is how do you how do you really communicate that where people begin to see that as a real tangible thing? And then the other thing is just um, 
you know, do, doing that long term. And, and the, the for-profit thing, how do you get members to see when you buy these services from a for-profit, guess where the money goes? To them. Yeah. Yeah. When you buy when you buy those services through the association, guess where the money goes? Back to you and you. services. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that associations as good communicators, they need to be better at is connecting those dots. That our our business model is not about just um, giving you some services so you can be more profitable. It's about making you a whole person, better pe- person where you look to the future and you feel better. But also the money you invest does not go to some for-profit entity. It comes back to you right. in forms of services. Right. Wait, I, I just want to add to your question, but also say that I couldn't disagree more that a for-profit organization, the money goes to the owners, whereas in a in a non-for-profit, the money goes back to you. Bullshit on that. The fact <laughs> is it all goes to operating the organization. It's a tax structure. You're telling me that associations aren't trying to make more money? They are. They, are they, they invest. They invest it back into. There's no. For, there's, there's no, no dividend. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no dividend. Well, there's no also much end. less focus on on the margin. But it's most true. for-profit organizations are trying to create value for their for their membership for their customers. Right. They're trying to create value, and they just do that by dumping in a huge amount back into the business to create a better product, to create better, more efficient operations. So like I, that's an, that's. Well, the I think you do. I think EO members do. It sounds like your association's members do the same, but uh, you know, having worked in Africa and I don't want to dislike the mega mega corporations, but they're not sinking their profits back into Cote d'Ivoire and Cape Town, they're pulling those profits out. And uh, nothing wrong with that. I mean, we need to have all kinds of organizations in our economies growing, but I would rather put my time and effort into an EO member who is creating jobs and innovation in their community in Cape Town and keeping that there versus some of the big, big multinationals, you know, you know, the kinds of things they do with accounting, the pressures they're under for short-term returns that doesn't necessarily give them the opportunity to think the way you do as a business owner. I mean, Princeton is Princeton for profit or is that a, I don't really know. Oh, universities are, I I don't want to get in trouble, but that's where I was going to a lot of reform. Let me tell you, like I, (laughs) you know, a university charges off the top, like 30% to do business with them. That's crazy. None of us can charge 30% overhead. It's, it's nuts. So yeah, well, I was going to kind of put them in the non-for-profit category. Oh, I'm going to distance myself as an ex-academic. I don't want anything to do with that business. You're right. That'd be a great beer talk right there about uh, non-for-profits drive for revenue versus a a for-profit. You're totally right that, you know, absolutely being for-profit doesn't mean you're not sinking a lot of resources back into the network. But I think we do have types of large corporations that have different incentives and selling off of the businesses and all of that stuff. For me, Dave, there's a whole nother level of things like advocating, making sure the technical standards groups, it's a lot of the work that the nonprofit does that the the for-profit companies aren't doing that stuff, which actually has such an intangible big impact on their productivity and profits that a for-profit, that's what they're in the game for. They're taking all that money and reinvesting it in that stuff. And it just depends on how important that is to a member. I mean, if you want somebody fighting for you, in the standards area that they don't pass something that drives up your costs, you need to be with us because the for-profits just aren't doing that. So, yeah, but I mean, need, but, you're right. We totally, I'm not arguing that we don't need nonprofits. We totally, totally do. 
uh, and I'm glad they're here. Capitalism needs philanthropy to survive. Sure. Uh, what, can you repeat your question? Do you remember? I, I like totally derailed us on that one. No, it was good. I think we answered it. No. <laughs> well, so now, I, now, now the, the, the question really boils down to how do you take that intangible oh. that, 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 you're, that so many people stand at Mike at the end of the day, no one talks about you gave me a program or this. They talk about how you changed their life and yeah. how do you get. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. And this yeah. is what I wanted to add on to that. So endocrine society, they're friends of ours here in my company. And um, um, like there's a good example of an organization, a bunch of nurses and doctors talking about blood together. Yeah. Highly professional organization, right? How do they create this passion, the sense of identity? Mm. Because I think that's where a lot of associations struggle. And then next thing you know, that what they're saying is, oh, well, we're about providing qualified information to our membership, which again, I'm like, uh oh, like major red flag for me yeah. is like, if that's your value proposition, massive red flag. So how do you take a professional organization like that, for example, I'm not picking on them, by the way, yeah, and I'm yeah. not saying that's their value endocrinologists. <laughs> how do you take a, a, a vertical like that and create a, this passionate desire to want to be involved? Hmm. I mean, for us, I was more, um, I feel like Tom's question, I understand more because we put the members in the front of the recruitment process where when they're telling their own story and you have a Dave talking about what EO has meant to him, then uh, a pr prospective member hears that, sees that and says, I want to be like them. For us, most of our members come from people who already know our members. They're like, hey, I, I see Dave. Uh, his kids and my kids are in the same sports team. He seems really interesting. I've got a business, like how does he do it? And then they find out, oh, it's EO. And I mean, that's the best way to sell it for sure. In terms of how you would get professional groups to be passionate. I think about this all the time because my husband's an architect and he doesn't have a lot of loyalty to the AIA. Like he doesn't feel any great connection, but I know others do. Um, at one point, he did volunteer for the AIA teaching in schools, and he loved that. So I, I think it might be having some adjacent events. I, I don't know. I'm kind of making this up. I, I think, well, I, I, Tom, if I could, real quick. Yeah. I, so I asked about endocrine society, and I, I, I'm not going to be specific about endocrine, but I can say that many organizations will reach out to their membership and for advocacy purposes, right. and they'll say, can you tell us a little about how we've influenced your interaction with, if you say it's a nursing organization, with your patients? Yeah. And they will get back the most emotional uh, stories that uh, at how this organization have helped them treat somebody who was dying or had extreme depression or it's incredible the ywca um um uh, their their mission is to empower women the way they 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 help women in abusive situations incredibly emotional passionate uh support my father here's one american society of Mechan mechanical engineers how passionate could you get about that? Good grief. Okay. My dad was also in American Society of Mechanics. We would get the, the, the quarterly newsletter. Yeah. So my dad 
was a, we're going to get into a dad competition now. My dad was a fellow with the ASME and he's 84. He's in a assisted living facility. Okay. He's my, struggling. Yeah, my dad's 85, also in nursing home. We, we got to get these two together. I'll bet <laughs> they've met. I really, I bet they've met. So my dad was very, very involved. He, uh, this is a huge part of his life. I don't think he ever felt recognized at his job, mm. but when he went to ASME, he he got a great deal of recognition as a leader in the industry and in as he's battling dementia and struggling uh in his day-to-day operations now ASME is the thing that consistently comes up at 84 years old he still has a plaque he has his gavel he was a vice president as a volunteer there and it still comes up so my point with all of this is to say, uh, and this is kind of answering this topic that we're talking about right now, just because it's a professional organization does not mean there's emotion, there, there is that it's emotionless. Right. Let's put right. it that way. Right. Right. There's, my father feels this incredible sense of identity uh, that he's a, he would associate his life mm. to ASME. I'm an, wow. That's one of the top five things he'd probably say I am. I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a sailor, and I'm a member of ASME. That those are things that he would probably say about his life. So, anyway, Tom. Uh, well, what I was going to say on that, from 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 watching this stuff happen for years and years and years and studying it, you know, I've come to learn that half half an industry is joiners and half are not, and it's not mm-hmm. anything to do. It's not anything bad. It's just yeah. some people's DNA don't like crowds. They don't like to be yeah. involved. They just want to run their own race, and they do that, and that's good for them. And you know, half half the industry are man. I can't wait to be a member because I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. I, they're my people, my tribe. Right, but right. then once you get even inside the association, half the people don't want to be a part of the meetings. They just want to exist, and they but they want to support the effort because they get the value of what they do. But other half yeah. are like your dad, who man, they're engaged, they're involved, yeah. and they're all in. And I think whenever we can get the person that doesn't really come to a meeting to come to the meeting. Right. And I tell you, we, we never let somebody stand around alone. My sole purpose exactly. when I walk around a meeting is grabbing people and saying, hey, come here, I want to introduce you to somebody. Yeah. And by the end yeah. of the time that they're looking at me going, I can't believe I've been missing out on this. Right. Right. And that's what we that's what associations, I think, need to make sure they improve on and maximize is that engagement when at the meeting where those people that don't normally come to meetings yeah. say, I'm never going to miss one of these again. Yeah. Now, I, I love hearing about your association. I had no idea how similar EO and MTI were because we do, we do the same thing. I try to think a lot about uh, introverts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we all know in a, a big room, the extrovert takes the mic. And I think constantly about, okay, I would guess way more than half of our members are introverts and having them be in a place where they feel like, they can make conversations, they can start conversations and they can be be heard. Um, I, I hope is like a, a not so secret sauce, but a way to help people feel like their association is not just the normal place where it's a hierarchy and you know, these people talk and I don't right. really care what they have to say. So um I, I think that's a match. I do the exact same thing. Try to make sure if I see someone standing alone, who are they interested in? Who can they meet next? I mean, that that's the funnest part about the job. Right. Well, you know, and especially, um, you know, we do a 30 minute first timers reception on night one of every meeting where it's just the boards. They get to yeah. meet intimately the the uh, the board of directors and, and any past presence that are there, yeah. the leadership. And then it's just the first timers, which might be a dozen to 20 people, which is conducive to people who don't like to walk into big crowds. Immediately. Right. Right. You know, right. So that's one of the ways we make help them. I call it the uh, the um, 
the appetizer menu. Yeah. You're going to have to come in and just kind of taste a little bit of stuff. And then all of a sudden here comes the entrees. Right. Um, so I think it's very important that we as associations are really trying to make that first step, the first step an exciting one. Oh. All right, Tom, let's 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 bring it down to this last uh, point. I want to make sure we get Carrie out of here on time. Uh, Carrie, uh, as we do at the end of every one of these episodes, we uh, focus on what was our key takeaway? Uh, usually Tom and I will go first to give you a second to think about it. Uh, Tom, you want to go or you want me to? I can go. Okay. Yeah, you know, and, and having this conversation, listen to Carrie, going back to her time at um, American Red Cross and just her experience with EO through COVID, is leaders just really have to be the calm in the storm. Mm-hmm. And you have to take a moment to step back and always realize that it's going, no matter what's gone on in my career, I've always had the one, the fact that it's going to be okay. That okay had to come from an internal confidence that you really yeah. believe as a leader that you can lead the team through it. So I want to challenge everybody listening to this. If you're a leader of an association, find that for yourself. Find what's going to give you the confidence to sit in the storm and make sure your people have what they need to go forward. And I kind of learned that today a little bit listening to Kara's inspiring, listening to how you um, dealt with that at the American Red Cross and then EO during COVID. So for, for me, the takeaway really comes from the discussion. It's not one thing any one of us said, but it, it's that uh, idea that um, even in a professional organization, you can create this um, uh, a sense of identity and passion that then drives everything else. Yeah. Like it's, it's that identity, it's that passion that I was explaining in my dad's, uh, in, in his mind, his 84-year-old mind, it's that passion for ASME is still there. And I think EO has done that well. And I think a lot of organizations are doing that and some many are struggling with mm. that and still selling member benefits in through their publication yeah, yeah. so that that's yeah, so, kind of my key thought for it today so, so my first takeaway is that dave and i have to talk about our dads who are mechanical engineers right. maybe that's a whole other podcast children of mechanical engineers because i don't know we're on a factory <laughs> <laughs> you know? is, it, is that a horror movie or the children yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that engineering gets stuck in your brain, even when you're a liberal science, a liberal arts person like me. But uh, I really, really liked hearing about a trade association because I have, you know, being new to the association space, I have some stereotypes and I'm like, oh, I work for the best association. Entrepreneurs are so much fun and they're innovative, but it sounds like you're doing the same thing. And I'm just so impressed that associations through and through are really helping people build those connections, the identity. And Dave and I know, I mean, like the research shows having those other kinds of social networks in your life, having people who know you, different types of friendships, that's the key to long-term health. So, you know, what we in the association um, industry are doing to help people, you know, really have deep and wide connections, that's really pretty awesome. That's my takeaway. Well, real quick before we leave, I want to leave you with something, Carrie, I think you ought to give some, some thought to. So back in 2009, I was wondering, what's going to be that rally cry for our members to bring them together emotionally? And I was sitting in a movie theater. I used to go to the movie theaters 20 minutes early to watch all the te- the uh, um, movie trailers because yeah. I wanted to see what brings people back to want to see it because we've been doing video very effectively since 2009. And so I'm sitting there and the Army commercial comes on and, and it was like, they're strong, then there's Army strong. And I went bingo. From that moment forward, every email, every video, every sign off on every 
single video says there is strong and there's MTI strong. Aww. And I want you to really think through the, the, the rally crowd, there is strong and there is EO strong. It resonates with people. And I think associations don't, that, that to me, it all hit home one night at a, at a reception of 20 people. One of our suppliers stood up and said, I want to make a toast. Everybody's like, okay. And they said, put your wine up. He says, I want to say only one thing tonight. There is strong and there's MTI strong. And I'm like, man, it finally hit home. And they, and they, and they believe that now. Yeah. Uh, that is amazing. Have someone else use your, your inspiration and then it's theirs. I mean, that's, that's it. You've resonated with everybody. That is really impressive. Well, thank you for being with us today. This is, I, I loved hearing how you come through your, your journey and the things you've done with the Red Cross and with EO. Well, I learned a lot to me. That's, that, that makes this a terrific podcast. I just, I really learned a lot from the conversation. So thanks for including awesome. me. Carrie Santos, I'm a huge fan. I, I love this organization we're part of, but uh, if, if ever you pick up and leave, I'm still a huge fan of yours. And anything I can do to help you uh, personally or, or in the organization, I'm always a text away. So uh, I'm Thank here. You both. Yeah, now I have I a new care. friend, Tom, too. We'll have Absolutely. to see if I get invited to Park City. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, let's connect. So we're, we are friends professionally from here on out. Absolutely. Thank well, you, Tom. really fun. If you haven't already, and I think we've talked about this in the past, I, I, I encourage you to consider, and this is a little plug for uh, my second most active association, which is ASA, ASAE, American Society of Association Execs. I think I introduced you to Reggie Henry, maybe at some yeah, yeah. point. But I, uh, it, it is really, you'll meet a lot of people like Tom and many, many other executive directors and, and, and people in the staff. And then you'll meet a lot of people like me and vendors in this space too. But if you're not involved and if you're, I, I think most of our listeners probably are involved with mm -hmm. ASAE. But uh, it's a great organization to be become a part I love of. the discussion boards. That's where I'm the most involved. But oh, so you are a member. Oh, yeah. yeah good, yeah. good. Okay, fair enough. All right, guys. Thank you very much, Carrie. Tom, have a Thanks great a lot, day. Catch you, catch you guys later. Great. Later. We hope you gained some inspiration that will help you run an efficient and effective association just like a business and maybe laugh a little with us. If you have a topic you would like to hear us talk about or if you just want to reach out to us for any reason, you can contact us at Tom at tommorson.biz or dave at propfuel.com. Give us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget, subscribe and share with your friends.